Good evening, fervent nationalists, and welcome to Slow Motion Triple Feature, a podcast in which three friends watch three movies over the course of three weeks. Each month, a different friend will select a different triple feature for their friends to enjoy and discuss. Slow Motion Triple Feature is one of the many fine podcasts brought to you by the American Friend Institute. Kit, would you tell us a little bit more about the American Friend Institute? The American Friend Institute is an organization that honors the heritage of the motion picture arts. We produce educational podcasts about film, including Adam Sandler, Life in Pictures, and have curated a jury-selected list of the 100 greatest films of all time. The American Friend Institute was founded out of our mutual disgust that The Exorcist was not on the American Film Institute's list of 100 greatest movies. It's also not on our list because no one nominated it. I think we all probably thought someone else would do it. The American Friend Institute does not recognize the existence of any of the Star Wars films. On an unrelated note, Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan is the 61st best movie ever made. Amen. And this week's pick, five slots higher at number 56 on the American wow. Friend Institute. Wow. Wow. Really? Okay. I'm always surprised. That's even more impressive because I had not seen it before. So it must have I'm been. the only I one who had Both of sure. you? Or... No, just me, I'm sure. Okay, so you were just very insistent on this one. Yeah. I would put it on um, now, though. If we redo the yeah. list, it would be online. Okay, I'm really, cool. I, I'm really happy to hear that. Well, I hated this movie, just <laughs> absolute garbage. So we'll have a good episode tonight. Uh, Mike, I am your host, Mike's, Mike Keller. Mike's and been waiting to get us back <laughs> for Night Beast. For Night Beast, I will avenge Night Beast. <laughs> That's right. Okay, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, I am your host, Mike Keller, and I am joined today by my good friends Kit and Andrew. Tonight we are discussing 1985's. Well. I guess I should say tonight we're kicking off a new triple feature of Andrew's choosing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the unusual biopic triple feature. I'm calling it uh, unconventional, call it? unconventional biopics. Okay. Unconventional biopics or biopic, depending on uh, what region of the country you're from. Uh, discussing 1985's Mishima, a life in four chapters written and directed by Paul Schrader uh, with a co-writing credit for his brother, Leonard Schrader. Um. All right, so we've established that Kit and I had not seen this before. Andrew, uh, tell us a little bit about, about the picture and why you selected it. Um, Leonard Schrader sounds like a made-up name he used to get paid twice. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, my brother, he's, he's hard at work at home. <laughs> he just couldn't make it to pick up our paychecks. Um, sorry. Um, no, I... I saw this movie a few years ago um i i've known about it for a long time and uh but i i only saw it for the first time a few years ago because why did i watch it i think because i, I love the score so much i think it's really 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 cool mm. score um it's just i have it on vinyl i listen to it sometimes it's just really like intense um and like consistently good throughout and um and then on top of that I've I've always been interested in this movie because it's Paul Schrader's kind of hit or miss, but he's done some really, really important things, I think, um, to the for the you know, that have impacted cinema in big ways. But I feel like this movie is probably the most ambitious thing I've seen him do. And I it's it's just it doesn't really exist on people's radars. It's also a movie that is produced by. American Mm -hmm. Zoetrope and Lucasfilm. Um, And, you know, the the more surprising is George Lucas, just because, you know, I know that he used to collaborate with Coppola a lot, but, like, Lucasfilm is, like, 90% in the Star Wars and Indiana Jones business. So Mm -hmm. every time there's a a Lucasfilm 
outside of that, it's it's I don't know. It's just like, what is this? Um, so and this is the most bizarre thing that has George Lucas's mo- uh, name attached to it, I would say. Uh, maybe outside of Howard the Duck. Um, and then, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I also I read um, I've, I've read a, a Sound of Waves, which is one of my favorite books. And it's a really, really beautiful love story and and very easy to read if you ever get a chance. Um, and then I've read <laughs> and not finished Temple of the Golden Pavilion, um, which is uh, featured in this movie and very difficult to read um, due to the subject matter. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I just it's it's visually, I think, very. Arresting. Um, there's a lot going on. You've got different eras and they all have their own kind of visual identity and then you also have the books within like the pieces of the books that are incorporated into the movie and those are very like saturated and stylized and um i'm i'm a person who i i roll my eyes at so many biopics um i feel like they're very formulaic generally and then like every now and then somebody does something interesting with them uh with with that medium and i it, there's just something about this that's so it's so good to me but it's also kind of the antithesis of what makes a good biopic in i think a lot of like for like a lot of award shows and things like that you know when i think of a biopic mm-hmm. i think of walk the line or ray you know those types of things and this is just a very different movie i think um so yeah, I don't know. It's cool. It's it's something that a lot of people haven't heard of, and I think this the again the score is just it's it's also kind of like I've heard this score like repurposed for other things like many many yeah. many times. I've seen it in trailers and um, so there's things like yeah. So anyway, uh, I'm kind of rambling now, but uh, yeah, I just think it's it's a a visual and audio experience that is um, unexpected from people of such like well-known prominence i think in the film industry i guess the one thing i thought uh this isn't really i not to go in a different direction immediately but you're talking about the the score have you seen any of like uh the koyana skatsi or nakoikatsi uh trilogy i think Pawakatsi is the other one no i haven't i okay. it's, it's a it's a hole in my you know viewing experiences but i'll, I'll get to it that's yeah, that's philip last too right yeah it is. It's Philip Glass did yeah. the score, and it's like that was kind of my. I mean, his Philip Glass's music can kind of sound similar, sure. And uh, but uh, but yeah, so that was kind of my introduction to him, and I yeah, I had that soundtrack too. Um, but this yeah, I hadn't heard this one before. It was it was very cool. It was also interesting because like I watched most of the movie last night, and then I just got way too tired for like the last thirty minutes. I didn't finish it until today, and. Uh, then to kind of brush up before I watched the last 30, I fast forwarded through the first hour and a half and it was really, it, yeah, like you definitely notice the score as you're watching the film, but then it was like watching the film on fast forward with no sound. Um, I don't know. It was just like you come to see, I don't know. Like, I, I feel like I, something I thought was that the movie is about a guy who has a very intense inner life and like really what's happening on the screen is rarely particularly grand. I mean, toward the end it is obviously, but, uh, but I think the music really drives home. Like 
kind of how he's such a passionate and just like mm-hmm. uh, driving person or something. And I think had I not watched part of it silently, I probably would have never been like, it's like, what's the significance of this, that type of score? Because it's especially for 1985, it's a very unique kind of, you know, film score. Um, but I really liked it. But and I liked I guess I could just say I like the movie. Uh, I don't know. I felt a little outside of it because there was like I've never read any of Mishima's work. I really don't know that much about Japan or Japanese history. Uh, but I was I was into the movie. Uh, and then when I read about it more afterwards, like I got the Criterion disc and it came with like a little booklet. Yeah. And so I read through that and like I looked at the Wikipedia and it kind of gave me more of an appreciation for it. I think not because the film itself wasn't enough, but just because I just did not have kind of the, some of the background uh, that would give you more of an appreciation, but yeah, but I liked it quite a bit. I thought it was a really interesting movie. Um, I don't know that like, I guess I was a little surprised that you're so hot on it. Cause I don't know that I would have watched it and been like, Oh, that's an Andrew movie, but yeah, um, I can, but yeah, so I, I thought that was interesting. I, I agree with you. And I think I, I also think that, um, I don't know. I think part of it is because I've read some of his work and that. Yeah. You know, like I maybe I but I don't think I also don't think you're missing a ton of context. Like, I think the the context is still kind of buried in the movie. Um, And then also like a lot of this, there's there's uh, I think one or two of the of the books that are featured in the movie aren't even translated in English. Um. So mm-hmm. so like some of that context would be almost impossible for you to get anyway. Um, but it's not I think it's I think it's still in the movie, you know, like with the Temple of the Golden Pavilion. I mean, that character with the stutter is is Mishima. And Mishima had a mm-hmm. he grew up with a stutter and, um, you know, eventually he. Just became like a bodybuilder and he did it to kind of like attract sort of like followers or slaves or whatever um so there's i there is like a there is a through line that is that keep that is is consistently biographical even through the um the excerpts from his books which i think is pretty interesting. yeah i thought that was cool mm-hmm. yeah but kit what do you think of the film well i thought that I'd seen this before I still am not sure um like I've read about Mishima and watched a lot about this movie I think so I knew so it wasn't super clear but watching this I was like maybe I haven't like sat down and watched this whole movie before um but like I'm kind of concerned about talking about it because like I just think it's like really fucking good and like in a way that, you know, 99.9% of movies are not. And <laughs> I don't know exactly how to talk about it other than it's fucking I have, great. I think I, I yeah. have the same I have the same concern. Like I I was like, what do I yeah. what do we say? <laughs> I mean, I think comparing it to other biopics is one way to go about it. Like it seems like one of the problems with particularly that wave in like the early 2000s where like Ray, the, basically movie music biopics that were parodied by Walk, Walk Hard. Um, yeah. Which is <laughs> such a Better. great movie. Um, yeah. <laughs> like, 
that they follow such a conventional narrative and that they seem they're hagiographic, like they seem concerned with presenting the figure that they're talking about in only positive terms. And this movie, to me, seems interested in studying the character of a person who would end up doing such a remarkable thing at the end of his life by looking sort of for clues and things in his work. And I feel like the film deals with his, you know, narcissism and his, uh, you know, obsession with his appearance and these things that are not necessarily um, positive attributes, but with but in a non-judgmental way and still makes those things beautiful in a manner that fits the subject who was so concerned with things being beautiful. So it's like the, the movie gives you an idea of who he was and why he did the things he did and, you know, the explores like the meaning and relevance of his art without sugarcoating him into this perfect heroic person but I still at the end of the movie am like you know tear I have the, I have more I think I have more of the genuine emotion that movies like walk the line are trying to get me to have watching this um, well than I, I do in that movie I think I think there's a, a, a level of compassion that the movie has without letting Mishima off the hook completely. Like I'm thinking the, the, the probably the, the, the section of the movie that resonated most for me was the temple of the golden pavilion stuff, because mm-hmm. there's something like when you compare the Mishima stand in with the, I don't know, the, the deformed guy with the, who, with the limp, it's the, the mm-hmm. I mean, if, if, if I'm weighing disabilities, <laughs> one seems much worse <laughs> than the other. One feels not superficial, but um, more in like the way he feels about it feels more like very informed by probably how he was, how he's treated versus mm-hmm. um, it actually, I don't know, but I'm trying to get at it just, it there's something very, like you, I feel like you can see his vanity more so mm-hmm. like with the with the 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 limp the guy with the limp you know I mean that's like a, a serious like an inability to like uh you know transport oneself but with Mishima's disability it's it's much more about it just feels much more informed by people making fun of him without showing that right without without mm-hmm. taking or showing much of it without dwelling on a character being you know bullied and abused for speaking weird and i don't know i so i feel like there's a sense that you know this person is a product of something but it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't take his agency away from him is this making any sense yeah okay. well it feels like mm-hmm. the movie honors him in a way by presenting him somewhat in the way he in a way he might have liked to be presented mm-hmm. um you know like there are things in his background particularly with his father who's like not even in the movie 
that you know his dad was not necessarily the nicest guy um you know and but but we don't it's not just like let's let's put all the tragedy into this movie that we possibly can and i feel that the you know the the climactic moment of the movie the final moments there was a way for instance I think about how Scorsese would have handled that moment. And it's not a critique of Scorsese, but it's interesting to think about because I think Scorsese is so interested in his mafia movies in the kind of absurdity and ugliness and comedic potential of violence. And there's a certain way of reading um, Mishima's death you could show it in a very, uh, it was not pretty. <laughs> like, right. Yeah. Oh, it went very wrong. Um, and I'm so glad that in this movie, at least, that's not what we get. That we get basically a cutaway to a character <laughs> in his novel experiencing the fantasy of what he th- presumably thinks his real life death is going to be like and you still get a sense of all the disappointment because we see that no one responds to anything that he's saying and like he says i don't think that they heard me um like without dwelling on how like how truly hapless it all ended up being um yeah and i mean even and i think even, that's I think, nice well oh, go ahead it was gonna say even even as he's like on his knees ready to go he's sort of addressing the room without saying anything and i don't like there there's such a a shock from all the other the you know the his sort of his acolytes that even the guy holding the sword like i don't get the sense that this is going to be like <laughs> clean or anything like what he romanticized it to be even even if you juxtapose that scene where he gets down on his knees to commit seppuku and the scene from runaway horses where the guy you know after his own disappointment after his own sort of like self-corruption or whatever he you know he he romanticizes killing some bureaucrat or whatever and then it's Mm -hmm. this brutal ugly thing and then he runs off to commit seppuku and it's this sort of and and that's that scene is very beautiful but then when it comes to Mishima's own suicide you know he has to do it on the floor of an office and there's just like mm-hmm. shit all over the floor that they have to they're kicking away with their feet to make there's just nothing mm-hmm. there's just nowhere near the actual the romanticism so i feel like you you don't you don't need it you don't need to see some got some poor some poor misguided you know insane person or whatever sawing at his own gut while a scared child tries to cut off his head it's yeah it's fails all, to cut yeah, his head off what's that <laughs> fails to cut his head off like, oh they didn't they did what he didn't they didn't i see i don't know any he, details some guy tried like three different times and he couldn't do it and then another oh guy God. there's also another there's a sweet element that they didn't include i'm saying sweet but basically he told all those guys were supposed to do it as well and he told them don't and 
like before he right before he did he said don't do don't follow me like don't do this and then one of the guys who went who ended up also doing it he was like really working hard to try to convince him not to do it um like he really didn't want him to follow him in this in the end but um jesus yeah so mm -hmm. i did not know until i read read afterward kind of how wrong it had gone for him yeah um and I did like the ending, but I also like kind of like you were talking about with the the more standard biopic, like what did you say? Like ha hagiography? Is that the word? Yeah. So where they have that kind of glorification. Yeah. So I that was actually uh, kind of an expectation that I struggled with while I was watching this is like, why is Schrader making a movie about this guy? Because I wasn't really like on board with uh, Mishima for some things. It wasn't like I was opposed to it necessarily, but I was just kind of like. Like, you know, this doesn't seem like the type of person I would spend a lot of time and effort making like a really good movie about him. Um, and then especially so, yeah, and I got over that eventually and was just watching the movie more for what it was. And, you know, once I kind of was conscious of that, but then, yeah, by the end, it was like. I don't know, it was it was almost and it, maybe I'm just, again, having no knowledge of Japanese history and culture for the most part. Uh Maybe I'm removed enough that it is funny to me. Uh, not that it's funny that he suffered or anything, but just like it's such an absurd thing. He he raids this military office. He basically, you know, holds this general hostage. He goes to speak out on the little, uh, you know, the little terrace and address the people. And they all just laugh at him and they you're they're yelling at him. And like they're kind of what he is upset about is this more materialistic, this kind of new uh, yeah, you know, these are all these young people who have been brought up in this kind of culture that he objects to. I, I kind of, I think is probably, you know, but maybe they were just objecting because they just thought it was a ridiculous thing to do or something. I don't know. But anyways, I felt like it was kind of such an absurd ending, but it definitely contrasted with, you know, what was the, the whatever the novel was. Runaway horses. Um, okay. So contrasted with that, it was very interesting. Like, and you can kind of see why Trader, who's somebody who takes... I mean, he takes many, many things seriously, but he, he takes art very seriously. He's a critic as well as a, an art mm -hmm. artist. And so to me, like that, I guess I wouldn't say like that was the point of the movie, but like that was definitely kind of the most interesting thing to me was how this is a guy who like really wants to uh, have things be a certain way. Like he wants to write his own life like it's a story. And then he just never does like he really does not. He doesn't even get close um but uh but yeah and so i wasn't really moved by his story like sympathetically like um you know i don't know it, it sounded like maybe you you were kind of like you were saying you you work it um yeah but i found it fascinating and i, I, I could see like okay this is a fascinating character this isn't mm -hmm. like um you know yeah like the typical subject of like you know uh, a, bio, a biopic type of thing. Anyways. I think I think it moves me on several levels because, like, on the one hand, like to me, the to me the movie is very successful in approaching its subject like the main character of a novel rather than of a biographical film, because yeah. I feel like in books, in literature, we probably going i mean going back decades it's not you know i mean we have our own particular struggles with this now but i think it's just kind of a feature of the film industry that 
there's so much more expectation <laughs> that the protagonist be a good person <laughs> or be, you know, someone we relate to or someone whose actions we admire as opposed to like novels being a place where you enter the head of somebody different from you who maybe doesn't yeah. do things that that you would do but you still you have the time to under try to understand what they're doing and to me mm -hmm. that's i think this movie is very successful in making you or helping you understand someone who might do something like this um and how art played into his decision to do things like this and so to me Part of what's moving is just like the respect that I feel Schrader has for him, not necessarily as a man, but as someone he's chosen to make a movie about. Like there is, I think you could argue a responsibility to your character, especially, you know, Schrader wrote the film as well to, to give, <laughs> to treat them like honestly and and show their perspective and almost kind of take their side in things in how you present them um, as opposed to just using your movie to like one, you know, like another biopic. I hated um, the uh, Tanya Harding. I, Tanya, I fucking hate that movie. Um, truly, because I think it has nothing but contempt in the end for its principle subject and that is evident um so it's not necessarily that like like there's a line to walk between like hagiography and just like uh sort of looking down on the person you're making a movie about so i really like that schrader seemed so invested in understanding uh mishima and you know which you should be able to do i think for any person <laughs> or fake or real um and maybe the maybe the responsibility is more there when they're a real person um but then i also thought you know in the i think i related i don't even want to say related it's just like that's such a lame word but um i appreciated how much he was driven by beauty and the desire for yeah. things to be beautiful and there was mm -hmm. like a moment at the beginning which i actually i forgot this element of his biography actually but like the first scene where he is having his coffee in that robe and i said to lee gay uh and <laughs> lee was like no he's just japanese and i said mm -mm. no, no. <laughs> and, and and um well bye <laughs> right exactly and you keep watching it and i just feel like there's a lot i don't know i don't know if i want to how to get in but like i feel personally that that element of his personality plays in there there's a lot of you know queer artists in history who you know Sort. I mean, he didn't even s seem to repress it that much. Like his novels deal very openly <laughs> with yeah. with those themes. Um, but you know, but he uh, just something about the obsession with 
beauty and uh, particularly his own physical beauty and wanting to to uh, there's something about like this okay <laughs> this is I'm only speaking for myself I guess I'll say but there but there's something about like same sex attraction that is I think can be different from heterosexual attraction because the line between wanting to be with someone and wanting to be them is a little easier <laughs> to blur <laughs> when they are, you know, the same sex as you. Um, and that like line between like lusting after something as an object and then just like desiring so strongly to just be as beautiful and wonderful as that whatever that object is, which I think can happen in heterosexual relationships as well. Anyway, um, that's just not something that I see in that many movies. And mm -hmm. I liked seeing it. I liked all the experimentation with mirror mirrors and all that stuff. And it kind of mm -hmm. goes to, I think, him even trying all of his characters or himself in some way, which is like, he's not the only one to do that, but it's like, you know, he has already written the version of his life that he would like to see play out. And then he tries to do it. I mean, that's one interpretation and it doesn't exactly yeah. work. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, I think they, that's interesting. they, they kicked that off it at the beginning with, with the, the thing that Paul Schrader does, the, the man in a room getting ready thing. Um, mm -hmm. I love that. I love that opening when he just walks and he's standing in the mirror. And I feel like just right then you have the sense that, you know, he views himself differently than what he actually is. Um, I One thing I wanted to bring up was uh, I think there's a, a deal of, of uh, sympathy and exploration for sort of the dissatisfaction that i think people experience when they achieve things um and this is not everybody but i feel like it is true for a lot of artists and i think it's also true like people who make money you know people who make lots of money they're generally not content it's like that's not enough people are always after more and more and more which that's not necessarily sympathetic but i do think it's interesting to for somebody who create something that people respond well to and that gains them adoration and respect and so so much that they have they that that energy becomes a driving force into who they who they will become from that point so you know he i don't know it's it's interesting to me that i i think there's there's something that happens to some people where they sort of lose sight of reality because they're no they're no longer really living in it they're living inside of people putting them on a pedestal so i think that it makes perfect sense that he would become delusional and 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 you know romanticize his his own death and think that he's saving the country and uh you know and think that the emperor gives a shit about anything that he's doing um so, but I also find that very sad, um, and it yeah. makes it makes me feel it makes me feel sad for famous rich people, um, which is a weird thing to say. But I, I just feel like it's it's very easy to 
to say like, oh, well, they've got money and they've got fame. So, you know, whatever, whatever they're dealing with, they can just, you know, buy it away or whatever. Um, but people are, you know, we're all wired in a, in a, in a certain way, uh, or in a, in a, in a way we're all wired, you know, not everybody, but I mean, people generally are wired in a, in a complimentary way. It's, you know, like as a species, we're, we're similar and we have similar wants and needs and we think somewhat similarly. Um, and so I think to have compassion for people, even in positions that we can't relate to, um, is probably a little difficult and, uh, you know, just interesting. Yeah. And it's also, I think, interesting because he's presented in a way where he feels to me like a very modern figure. And there's also a way in which this movie doesn't feel like 1985 necessarily. It doesn't really feel like <laughs> any particular time. Sure. Yeah. Um, but you know, we're this is this is a person who like was declared so he was declared like unfit for duty or almost unfit for duty. And like his dream was to go die in in World War Two. And well he, well, he did that his to parents, himself. Well, yeah, that's the well, that's what they I I think that I think that's up for I think in the movie he did it to himself in his in real life. It's not super clear. He was like okay. he did maybe have a cold that day, but then was identified, but then was determined to have tuberculosis, which he didn't. Yeah. Um, and. He like his parents were thrilled that he didn't <laughs> have to go. So even though like he and his parents are from the same culture, it's not like they were all on the same page about like what it but then i you know i don't know if you guys have ever seen uh my boy jack I've, i saw it because daniel radcliffe was in it like when he was still a teenager i think and it it was about kipling like just using every connection he had to get his near blind son enlisted <laughs> in the military what the um, fuck where he where he ends up dying because like people like it was not that long ago that that people are you know much younger than us were like if i can't do this like i'm worthless you know <laughs> or like yeah. this is what i want to do i want to go possibly die um for this fucking war or whatever <sighs> um like he's so like that's but you know the movie does a good job of not making that seem so incredibly foreign and i think tying it into his his vanity and his desire to be not a weakling i was thinking basically the the short of it like it would sort of it does it it's since i've been in high school or whatever it has kind of struck me as foolish not not foolish but as not a decision i would make to like go fight, you know, in the wars that we've had since mm -hmm. I was a teenager. So, you know, since around uh, post September 11th, stuff like that. I was like, well, like why? And it's like, well, you know, kind of the, there was a time possibly where the government was less of like a sort of like technocratic apparatus, like where you probably would have actually felt like you're fighting for your homeland and mm -hmm. you would have felt like you're fighting for uh, something other than, mm -hmm. you know, like a corporation or something. And it's like, yeah. So it's, he was, and he was sort of maybe the last generation that could have like, you know, 
been, and I don't know that much about Japan, but just from what I know about world history, he would have maybe been like kind of the last to be able to fight against just this, like this kind of form of capitalism that we deal with this globalization and this, you know, whatever all this is, uh, that kind of makes every, that kind of makes nations irrelevant Mm -hmm. and that type of thing. So it does seem perplexing to be like, why would you go fight in a war? Like, why would that ever, you know, you might Mm -hmm. as well stay home and watch Netflix or something. But like, anyways, well, and he had, I think he had, I mean, based on, you know, what I've read about him, I haven't read any of his books, but he was very invested in Shintoism and in the idea of the emperor as a divine figure. And when the emperor denied his divinity after World War II or toward the end of World War II, he felt like all those people (laughs) who died, who committed suicide uh, Mm -hmm. to defend like their deaths are meaningless now. Like that's a pretty profound betrayal. If you actually believe that's what you're fighting for. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I mean like, yeah, I don't agree with (laughs) his thinking, but I do feel that I understand why he felt that way. Um, yeah. Like I well, yeah, am sympathetic you, to it. If you view your national leadership as more than a managerial class, mm-hmm. you know, like if you like that, for example, like if you believe there's actually divinity, like whether it's a mm-hmm. king or an emperor, um, then yeah, it's just, it's a very different worldview than I'm ever, than I'm right. used to. It's interesting. Mm-hmm. Anyhow, it was somewhat unrelated, but I suppose it did, uh, play, it plays into his character quite a bit. Mm-hmm. makes it more understandable. Uh, as, as out of place as that seems by the 60s. Yeah, it's definitely like Shakespearean that in 1966 and 67, he still thinks that that is something that could find footing Yeah. <laughs> again. Well, and I mean, maybe. I mean, you know, like yeah. may, certainly more than the now. Like it's so established now that it's like, I don't know yeah. what it would take. Uh, but but yeah, like in the 60s, that was sort of the idea in the United States. Uh to some, I mean, in, in a very different way, but mm-hmm. um, I don't know. Yeah, it's interesting. I think, but I think that's, I think that's part of why I think this is a good subject for a movie. I mean, mm-hmm. is that, and, and especially examined by, you know, an American filmmaker, because it's so different uh, from, I think, what we were experiencing at that time in terms of like, I don't know. I just think that, like, <laughs> looking at like a a a, a conservative artist, uh, I don't know if conservative is the right right wing. I guess artist. Uh, yeah. I don't know. Examining that, and then uh, you know, he's also like maybe kind of a fascist. <laughs> I mean, he's he's got his own army, and which is bizarre. <laughs> and um, and I don't know. There's something, and also there's. I was just thinking, like, we were talking about, you know. how he i'm kind of rambling now but i was just thinking about how he goes into that into that school they have like some sort of some sort of political like demonstration it's like a siege it's the by the left wing and he goes Mm -hmm. in and and argues with them and it's interesting to me just the way they portray him in that scene because he's not he's sort of he's sort of like the way he thinks is sort of uh you know cordoned off from like the actual public consciousness 
And yeah. maybe this ties back into kind of what I was saying earlier about just people, you know, reaching a certain level where they no longer are sort of uh, where what they're saying and what they believe is no longer as associated with reality as maybe it is for, you know, quote unquote normal people. But there's something about that scene that's really interesting to me where he's got, you know, people who are passionate and screaming at him. But he essentially says, like, you know, they're saying not only is what you're saying wrong, but it's also not logical. And he just says, I'm old. I don't or, uh, you know, I've already I've already I've already reached um, like the, the point in my life where I believe what I believe and therefore nothing, which is, you know, mm -hmm. nothing's going to change that it doesn't need to be logical anymore. And there's something <laughs> I don't know. There's something very. On, on the one hand, I feel like there's there's a connection with with people in general, because I feel like people a lot of times will reach a point in their lives where they it's too exhausting to learn new things and to change. <laughs> and so you kind of slow down. But it's sort of interesting to see that in a figure who can pretty much do whatever they want and have people tell them it's good. But I also, there's like, to me, it gets at like a huge, there's a huge generational difference between him and the people he's talking to. He is from a generation who willingly committed suicide in airplanes. Like, and I'm not like well, trying to make that sort of, like, sort of willingly. Right, but well, at least in his imagination, that he was exactly, very yeah. like he and he romanticized that tremendously. But you can see like there's a huge gulf between somebody who is really willing to die as a very young man for the you know emperor god of his <laughs> of his nation, like even though it was only like twenty years earlier, all that shit, like. That's pretty, so I can see, and also, like, I can see both. I think what's interesting about him is that he recognizes, like, he acknowledges in that moment, it would cost me too much to change my thinking at this point. <laughs> like, like I would have to, like, the amount of reevaluating one would have to do after going through that. And it's like, I understand that. Like, yeah. like. You know, the shit that people did in those circumstances, like, right or wrong. Like, I think about, you know, you know, an easy target, like Nazis. Like, you know, Nazis doing shit that any human being should be able to recognize as horrible, but because of ideology, they have been convinced to do this. The amount of respect I could theoretically have for a person who was willing after that to go, yeah, I was super wrong. Like how much that would cost <laughs> you afterwards to say like, yeah, I totally got that one wrong. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that would be, that would be a huge thing to overcome. Like we have people like, sticking by their guns for far lower stakes, you know, right now. Ex exactly. In this country. Exactly. <laughs> so there's something yeah. interesting so, about really him just being willing to, to acknowledge it. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I, I found that scene interesting because, like, I obviously I could could not help but think of you know, just modern you know the last decade or so where like, um, somebody comes to a campus and everybody's mm-hmm. yelling at them and they're they're you know being shouted down or that kind of thing, uh, deplatformed or whatever. Um, but I was kind of wondering like what would happen like for example let's say like, um, who's some like like Ann Coulter or like Ben Shapiro if they were mm-hmm. just like. I don't have to make sense. Like if they just like, yeah. if that was kind of what they said to the student mob that was like, you know, screaming at them or something. Cause like, that's kind of, that's kind of become a component of, uh, I don't know what to say, like the left or whatever this is, the, the woke, uh, sort of section of the progressive section of the American left. Like they, they actively argue against like making sense because the, the idea of making sense, you know, privileges certain, yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, whatever, but well, like, that's something you'll read in like postmodern. I would say stuff. Ar- I would say that- I would say arguably that 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 dialogue is happening, not in the same way we see it in the movie, but like, I mean, Donald Trump rarely made sense, and people were fine with it. Right. So that's what I was thinking. I was like, so you've got one group of people who are screaming at some guy, but they kind of like they have romanticized not making sense. And so mm-hmm. what if Donald Trump just said, looked at them and said, like, I don't have to make sense. Like, I don't have to make sense either, you know? And then, like, <laughs> it, it's almost like if if they just both just said what they actually are saying but as I, opposed to dressing it up and, you know, something. Anyways, that was somewhat unrelated. But I, I thought that was a funny scene. Or, or uh, uh, yeah, it was interesting. And, like, I, I, okay, I in life, like, I strongly require everything to make sense and I'm very overly (laughs) rigorous in myself about making sense I think but I also am you know a religious studies major and the idea that there's only one way for things to make sense is or that that you know a kind of like logic in that scene is the only way Mm. for things to make sense or that science is the only way for things to make sense is like that is also I think absurdly um, almost like egotistical of us <laughs> to believe. Like it's it shows such a faith in our own uh, intellectual capacities that like I am much more doubtful of. And I don't think there's any problem. Like in his case, I feel like what he's doing makes a kind of aesthetic sense if it doesn't make logical sense. And I'm sympathetic to those motives. I'm sympathetic to mm. a kind of religious sensibility about life. I don't think that everything in life should be subject to the rigors of a kind of, I don't even want to call it academic, but a kind of like, I don't know, intellectual, like logical sense. Like you wouldn't, Mm -hmm. somebody who wasn't like him wouldn't write those books, you know, like they wouldn't do anything. Well, Autistic, when I, probably. <laughs> it's interesting. I think I think his perspective is actually like in the movie. I feel like we we don't necessarily agree with his perspective, but not entirely. But I feel like obviously, but I feel like going into his books, like A Sound of Waves, is interesting to me because you can tell that it's written by a bisexual fascist. It's uh. <laughs> for one it's it's sort of playing with um the 
I Western romance. Um, you know, I think we look at it'd be like looking at. Uh, I'm trying to think like what are what's a like if you took off the ending to um, the Graduate or something like that, where it's it, it's people you know two 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 uh, you know young lovers um, abandoning. Uh, you know their families and their um their culture and whatever else in the name of of you know love that that cannot be extinguished or something like that you know we we i feel like we uh romanticize love above all in a lot of like mm-hmm. movies and stories and the thing i like about a sound of waves is that's not really what it's about it's about two people who love each other and aren't allowed to be with each other and they respect that and they do end up together in the end but i just it's 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 about two people who understand where they're from who honor where they're from and believe that their own selfishness uh is not more important than right the world they inhabit and i think that's i think I don't know. There's I'm trying to I'm trying to connect it back to the movie a little bit because I also think that like we're filtering, you know, he's filtering ideas like that through his own you know, his own narcissism believing that he's the person to mm-hmm. uh, you know, set that example. Accomplish this. Mhm. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Um well, it's funny because and I swear I'm not bringing this up because they're both Asian, but maybe that is relevant. But like, I felt that way about Crazy Rich Asians. Like that movie was so recommended and like broadly celebrated. And I watched it and I thought it was, (laughs) I found it, uh, you know, sorry, but sort of disgusting. But I think I understand that that's very grounded in my you know, particular point of view, which is like that this character played by Henry Golding, who is like a man so attractive that he should be able to overcome just about any other personality trait and become a romantic hero. But the fact that he was so willing to let his horrible family dictate his life was just something that I'm like, I can't get over that. He just became so unattractive to me. But, you know, putting it in another the you know the way you've just said it that it's like what both those characters have in common is that they're not willing to throw their families under the bus for their own happiness which we don't have that same kind of culture of family in the united states for the most part yeah (laughs) we don't live in a small fishing village in some japanese island (laughs) but it but it is something i think for instance like maybe part of the reason people got so excited about that movie is like there is something like Austinian about that about like Mm -hmm. you know there's a tradition in western literature as well of duty you know being something that's more important (laughs) than love and of that actually being a source of of a romantic angst that feels like that heightens the romance of things um that that both these people feel like they have a higher responsibility than their own you know personal happiness um i think i'm thinking of things like 
I'm, I'm thinking of things like Romeo and Juliet, where, and I haven't read it mm-hmm. since high school, but where you've got two people who aren't supposed to be together because of who the families that they're born to, and then mm-hmm. decide to do it anyway and then kill themselves. And I feel mm-hmm. like he's going the opposite direction with it. And right. I just think that it's it's sort of a it's a it's sort of a a nationalistic approach to living um which mm-hmm. we usually see as a negative thing especially i mean right now and in world war ii obviously like nationalism is are things that uh mostly the left are very um against and it's interesting to see somebody find a way to frame nationalism in a way that's kind of touching and actually does mm-hmm. uh help the people that live under it mm-hmm. and i think he you know i think rightly in a manner of speaking you know he is arguably correct that the erosion of japanese nationalism will erode japanese traditional culture as well absolutely that it does at least like if you don't make a very concerted effort to preserve those things that those will be you know even the the positive things that come from that culture will be lost yeah and you know it could be that there's a way to you know separate those things from jingoism uh but Certainly, you have to be thoughtful about it if you're going to <laughs> achieve that, I think. So, let's see. I had a thought many minutes ago. Um, I'm not a Schrader expert, uh, but I will say I did not know that the emperor was viewed as a divine uh, character, uh-huh. uh, just Japan in, in Japan. Um, and I kind of wonder, because I know that Schrader is either a lapsed Catholic or a possibly practicing Catholic. Um that he's a religious man. I know that mm-hmm. their spirituality is like a thread through all, uh, basically yeah. through, through his work. Um, and I wondered if uh, there was something to, I don't really have anything to say about it, but I just had the thought that it sounds like what the situation was with uh, uh, Mishima was that he basically, so Kit was saying that maybe the emperor had acknowledged that he was not uh, mm-hmm. of divine or, or a divine something. Uh, and that that was such a disappointment and even a betrayal of everybody who had ever said, mm-hmm. who had basically died for the emperor. Um, and I kind of wonder if maybe some, some thread of Mishima's story that appealed to Schrader would have been um, kind of the idea of, you know, basically God turning their back on humanity or mm-hmm. like, uh, or just the disappointment of kind of losing I guess in this case, like what you believed to be God, the, the person you believe to be like, I don't know, some sort of incarnation of, of God. And yeah. I don't know anything. Of, I really don't know anything about Japanese culture to say like they viewed him as an actual God or if he was just a divine, like the, uh, you know, blessed or whatever by God. But um, because that was one thing, I guess, watching this film, uh, usually every Schrader film I've seen, you can kind of see the struggling uh, Christian in him Mm -hmm. uh and then with this one it was like oh this seems i mean it seemed pretty like um it really like you could like 
I, I guess there's a lot of parallels with Taxi Driver, but I could have watched this film and had no idea that Paul Schrader was involved. Yeah. You know? Um, it doesn't, so, it's very, it's interesting because he considers this his best movie as a director. He considers yeah. Taxi Driver his best movie as a screenwriter, but this his best movie as a director. And okay. it's not like his other movies. I mean, I thematically, some, sure. Yeah, but, there's some overlap like the, with this and Taxi very, Driver, I think. Yeah, I think thematically there's a lot of overlap in all of his movies, but like, yeah, but just the, the, it's, I mean, this is an art film, I think <laughs> it's yeah. fair yeah, to say, sure. which is not necessarily, I mean, he makes good movies, but it, I don't, you don't necessarily think of them as art house type movies, more just like indie movies, I think. Yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, the last one of his I saw was the the one with Ethan Hawke. I can't think of the title. Uh, First Reformed. First Reformed, yeah, which I, I really I did not care for. Um, Lee loved oh, it. But, I loved it too. Yeah, I think I think I talked with Lee about it at the time. Um, but although, yeah, I can't think of a lot of other Schrader films that I have seen. Um, he's but, been he's been yeah, he's been like, out there. He's been he's been cranking them out. Or, it's just you, know. you yeah. think of him i think as like the guy for gritty realism and this movie mm -hmm. isn't gritty realism like on any level <laughs> yeah it's no. like experimental but experimental to a degree beyond far beyond the kind of group producing it you know it's more mm -hmm. yeah, more so sure. than score than you know uh any of god i can't think i i told you last I told you when we did Dracula that like I can never remember his name. Coppola? Coppola? Coppola. I can never remember okay. Coppola's name. <laughs> Interesting. I'm going to turn my light on real quick. I'm just looking like a ghost floating here. Yeah, it is It is weird. Uh, you know, I think about other writers turned directors or actors who do movies, and there's something... This isn't... This is This may be like a, a, a bit of a reach in terms of uh, a generalization, but there's something about... I feel like when they when they jump into making movies as a director, it's it's never not never, but like oftentimes not as much of a visual experience as this. Yes. Is. Like this feels. Yeah. This feels like a director's movie to me. It does not feel mm -hmm. like a writer's movie or a an actor's movie. You know, I think about like. Like, like, think about uh, when we did Kit's um, actor-director triple. Like, g great mm -hmm. movies. Uh, they looked good, but I'm thinking specifically of, like, Big Night. Big Night, it's so, it's so actor-heavy, you know what I mean? It's yeah. not, it's not, it's not it's the same kind of like visual experience. Exactly, exactly. Or I think about... Like, there's um, good shots and edits and things, but it's so much more like, we want to make a movie about this. <laughs> Yeah, this this yeah. feels to me like um, like a Tarsem Singh movie, or or like right. Dracula. Actually, Funny I think that. the I think the the one of the yes. art directors or something worked Aiko on Ishioka, Dracula. Ishioka, the production designer, did the costumes for Dracula and for all of Tarsem's movies. Okay, great. Yeah. Really? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and that tracks. That makes sense to me. So I, yeah, and she I basically think, I think... he she she did the poster for Apocalypse Now, which was her relationship to Coppola. But like she 
she's just kind of like an artist. Like she hadn't, I don't know if she'd even been a production designer before, but much like she hadn't really been a costume designer before either when she did Dracula, but she just apparently impresses all these guys so much that they are just like, okay, you can design my movie. And it's like, you look at this movie and it's like, how did she not become the most famous production designer? Yeah, I know. <laughs> you know, I alive. Know. Yeah. Interesting. And um, yeah, I, I think just if since we're kind of jumping into the aesthetics a little bit, I, I think um, I think this movie, you know, is it, it's obviously very beautiful, but I love how you're always grounded in where you are in the movie based on the the sort of fantastical elements or the saturation, you know, the black and white color, we know yeah. in the past. The sort of like realistic, gritty sort of tone we know we're you know mm -hmm. we're in the present, and all of the very you know the the almost it's almost like watching you know some of those sets uh, when they're inside the Toho Studios. It feels like um, <laughs> like watching uh, Dogville on shrooms or something. Like it's totally uh, yeah, very theatery. Awesome. I love and I uh, yeah. I, so I love that. I love. Because I think this movie would be impossible to track. And it's such a simple thing. You know, it's color saturation for the most part. Um, it's such mm -hmm. a simple thing. But I think this movie would be really, really hard to track. And it almost already is, just as it is. But I think um, I, I like I like simple solutions to complicated things. Um, you know, because you know, bouncing mm -hmm. around in time so much and just... Just always knowing where I'm at is a, um, and also you know it's just pretty to look at. The black and white stuff is beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Everything, everything looks really nice. Much like Dracula, like I f don't feel that this is a pretentious movie. Like no, <laughs> personally, yeah. I think it's pretty accessible. I think this would be a good first art movie for anybody who hasn't really seen a kind of like unconventional narrative or something before. Like, well, cause yeah. it really, it's entertaining. It really holds your attention. It looks amazing. It's changing kind of all the time. If you don't like a particular part, something different is coming. Um, and you, and it paints a good portrait of the person almost whether you're fully paying attention or not. Like you can't help but like come away with a kind of a sense of what's of the story, I think. Yeah, I well, really... Uh, I did appreciate just how it was generally very clear. Like, is this real? Is mm -hmm. this biographical? Or is this from his, one of his uh, his books? Or I guess some of them were plays, right? Yes. Uh, okay. So well, in the in the in the in the movie, I think those are all books. Uh, Kyoko's. Okay. I know Kyoko's so House book. and Temple of the Golden Pavilion and Runaway Horses are all books. Okay. But there are yeah. scenes of him like shooting movies and. Yeah, I so guess he yeah he directed being in and making plays. Yeah, he directed one movie, which is only, it's like a short, and then yeah, a lot of his stuff has been adapt adapted in Japan. It's interesting too. There were moments. This is maybe a weird sidebar, but there were moments that made me think of like Taylor Swift because I was reading <laughs> about how I was reading about how yeah. he was like maybe on the short list to win a Nobel Prize like three or four years in a row or something like that. And he, another Japanese author, like one of his mentors won in one of those years. 
and it made him go, oh, well, the odds of them giving this to two Japanese people like in my lifetime are slim to none. And that that was like a very big professional disappointment, I think, for him. And it makes me think about like Taylor Swift, how she takes it as such a personal affront when she doesn't win like Grammy of the or album of the year at the Grammys. And it's like, that's what a weird type of person, you know? I agree, but at the same time, like that, if that's the world you inhabit and you are told that the, that this thing matters, then I think you're going to believe. I just don't think that's inevitable though. Like I believe for instance that Paul Schrader does not give a fuck what anybody thinks of his movies for the most part. Like I think, you know, you can be an artist, um, to the extent that I consider myself an artist, I feel very safe saying that I don't give a shit whether anybody, like, whether I have an audience or anyone ever pays any fucking attention to (laughs) shit that I make. It entertains me, and that fulfills me 100%. And I'm not saying that's better or worse but than the alternative. But it's very hard for me to understand somebody who's, like, who's, who... I think there's truth to like what you're saying where you can get to a level where it's where it's almost inescapable that you would care about those things. But then I also disagree with that. And I think, no, you're a fucking freak. If you ever, I don't care how famous you are. If you think you are owed a Nobel prize in literature, there's something wrong with you. Oh, I agree with that fully. Um, And I think also, I mean, those things, they, they raise your status, which raises your quote. I mean, it's also it's it's a money thing, too. Oh, yeah. You like know. wanting one and being excited about it. Absolutely. And even just being disappointed. But the idea of like, well, my life is over now because I have no <laughs> chance of winning a Nobel Prize. Like, that's crazy. Or like or even Taylor Swift, who seems to think like my album wasn't good because I didn't win this. It's like, yeah, what the fuck? Like, yeah. that's your, crazy. Your, your album wasn't that's good bananas. for many other reasons. <laughs> sure. Like, yeah. <laughs> Boom. That's just to define your success or failure entirely by the recognition of others. It's like, to me, well, that speaks to narcissism. I, I'd say, you know, Fearless, Speak Now, and Red got the the Mike Keller golden prize of excellence. So, right. Uh, she should be you should she send her happy one. with that. I think she yeah, would be happy of, with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's just a it's just any a, prize she'll take it's, it it's it's just a a, a a photograph of of mike with a macaroni uh gl- glued uh picture frame yeah. <laughs> i think i mean would you guys would either of you be disappointed to receive an award like that from from you yeah for me i mean but i feel like both of you would be delighted i so. would be delighted mm. yeah yeah what would it be for <laughs> Uh, well, for your book kit, and then okay. Andrew, it would be for your uh, uh, your oh. that horror film you worked on. God damn you! Maybe podcasting. <laughs> yeah. Did you finish? Uh, um, what was the thing about the the race car drivers? No, I don't know. It's if not I, finished yet. Okay, I don't know. Well, if I, I, can't I don't know if I ever will. Okay. It's... Well, then the the only thing I know you've completed then would be the. Cruel. Uh, the horror film. Thank you for giving me an award. Which I still have not for, seen. Yeah, that's a great thing to give somebody an award for. Something you've never seen. Oh, that's not much I different just... from the Oscars. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> you, sure. You, you'd be, you'd be right at home in the academy. See, so, 
that's I guess we're way off on a tangent, but like that's something I was thinking. Had I become like an artist, whether I was a writer or a filmmaker or something like that, like I think I probably would be a person who would be like, it's like I really want to get like a big award really? and go up on stage and make a cool speech. But like, um, but I think now that you kind of like now that I'm old or older than I was, like when I was 13, I specifically remember like after my shower, like drying off in the mirror and then like doing like a pretend like Oscars acceptance speech. Wow. And, that kind of stuff. And, um, that's and so that, but, weird. But, but now I know. Well, it's just like, I was a kid, you know, it's just like, you know, you just, I don't know. I was really into movies. You just get excited about stuff. And as a kid, you just, you're weird. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but, uh, but yes, I feel like now as an adult, I have zero, I have, I have less than zero respect for pretty much any organization. So let me ask you this. If they, if you were, so. nom- if you were nominated, just like, we've like, talked about this. In January, you get a call from the Academy saying, yeah. hey, Mike, you've been nominated for an honorary Oscar. What yeah. you, and, you know, what are you going to do? Not go? Yes. I mean, because I think what I think is cool now is like somebody like Woody yeah. Allen, who has just yeah. always he goes to like the jazz club. I'm like, that's cool. Like, that's because he's, he's not disrespect. He's not giving him the middle finger. He's just not going because he's, he's like, it's stupid. What a I'm time. It. What a time in history to think Woody Allen is cool. Um, <laughs> Woody Allen is cool. Woody Allen is innocent. I'm saying. <laughs> no, fine. Wow. All right. All right. It's true. I'll send you a video. Okay. <laughs> I would be so tempted not to accept my award or my nomination. Like the yeah, hard because it's pa- cool. The hard part of it to give up would be like I just want to experience this and see what it's like and like bring Andrew with me and like we'll just be like holy shit there's Tom Hanks or whatever. Like that yeah. would that would be cool to experience. But the award part, if there's some way I could, like, I'll go and I'll <laughs> sit there, but, like, pretend I'm not here. <laughs> like, and if I give the award, I'm not, if I get the award, I'm not getting up. I would absolutely. You don't, you don't think, you don't think not getting up would be more embarrassing than getting up? I know. See, that's what I'm saying. I don't want to make the a big deal out of it, but I'm saying I would you. be. I would be so tempted by how much obviously cooler it is to say I don't give a shit about an Oscar to actually yeah. not go. So the thing is, though, I think it's it would be nice to be recognized and acknowledged by your peers. But with what we know about how the Oscars right. actually works and like how like like all of these Weinstein films wound up getting Oscars, even though you go see the movie and it's like, that's not a very good movie. No, uh, like it's it's all it's a marketing thing. It's a political thing, et cetera. Like I wouldn't care if I got an Oscar. I mean, I guess it would be a blip on, it would be more than a blip on my radar if I were to make a film and win an Oscar for it, obviously. But uh, if, if you don't respect the institution, then it doesn't really mean anything for you to get a, a trophy think, from. Them. Yeah. I think I would be tempted maybe to be like, cause like you, okay, let's see. Like, I assume the kind of movie that I'm involved with is going to be kind of like a little engine that could, it's not going to be from some huge studio so maybe you feel kind yeah. of a responsibility to be like well i need to get this movie and all the people who worked on it as much exposure as possible but even then i think you go <laughs> and you just let somebody else get up from the movie and accept the award like let the production designer go accept my screenwriting like, uh, award or whatever marlon brando <laughs> yeah but like you know somebody associated with the movie or somebody somebody who would think that was cool like oh yeah. you can do it then yeah i don't want to yeah what I would do is get like somebody who I've always thought should have won an Oscar totally. and have them come up with oh, me that's and great. be like, yeah, <laughs> that's a great idea. Who would it be? Yeah. Like, oh, um, who do I think has never been? That's a good question. I'll have to get back to you on that. But yeah, that's a fun um, question. 
I think it would be fun just because then you could be like, like, who's somebody who's never, you know, Kubrick's dead, but obviously he never, mm-hmm. I don't think he ever won an Oscar. Um, Which is know. just, we'll, we'll have yeah, to, that's crazy. We're well off topic <laughs> here, but we'll have to, we'll ponder that. Uh, I think, uh, I think, recording. I think you guys are, I think this is wild. Uh, I also think the Oscars are stupid. They call me up. I'm freaking I there, man. I'm it. getting my best. I'm in my best suit. And you know what? I am both. I'm almost, I am simultaneously thinking the Oscars are stupid and hoping I win. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah. And I don't begrudge anybody who is excited about getting. Their totally. Oscar. That's yeah. That's, if that's something they're into, then yeah, that's there's fine. Two I'm putting that shit on my shelf. You should not care or you should like really super care. Like you should be like, no, oh my God, this third is like way. the most exciting thing. No, there's what? a third way. My way. Thinking it's stupid and and being excited to win an Oscar at the same time. But I'm saying you should be two like, con- you're, two I mean, conflicting you should be excited things. to be there. You should be excited to be like, holy shit, isn't it crazy that this is happening? You know? And I also like when yeah, Michael Caine yeah. or somebody or like um, Joaquin Phoenix, when they give their, when they give their acceptance speech and they're like, um... Like, they just talk about all the other nominees. Like, that would be super fun. Yeah, I think that's cool, too, yeah. Here's here's but, what, here's uh, what I think I is fun about this scenario. So, I'm going to the Oscars, obviously. Um, Kit, I guess you can come. Um, okay. Mike. What the fuck? What about Mike? You don't want to go. <laughs> you don't want to yeah, go. <laughs> but, I, but, I, but I'll tell you what. We will text you a picture of us hanging out with Tom Cruise. Yeah. Ah, man. See, but is Tom Cruise ever even at the Oscars? Of course. Sometimes. Sometimes like when, he's, when he's when nominated, he's, when he's he not was jumping there for out of like Magnolia, in the aforementioned yeah. Michael Caine thing, but like he hasn't been in a few years. Ooh, this is what I would do. I would <laughs> so let's say uh, if they have an Oscars next year or whatever, um, then I will not go. You know, because I'll be nominated for my podcast work, and mm-hmm. then I will not go, and I will instead live stream on my social media. Uh, me and Tom Cruise like jumping out of a plane over the theater. All right, know, that, it, like it, it doesn't That's work. It, it doesn't work like that. Okay, because you're the <laughs> in this scenario, you're the same person you are now. You're not Woody Allen, where it like makes headlines that you're at a jazz club down the yeah. street. You're just a dude that 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 didn't so that nobody knows Cruise that didn't show up to the Oscars. What's that? That's why I get Tom Cruise involved. Yeah, that's exactly why I get Tom Cruise involved. Okay. <laughs> but he doesn't. I bet you're, they would take that. Okay. If somehow a screenwriter, okay. if somehow a not famous screenwriter <laughs> knew Tom Cruise and was like, instead of accepting and instead of an acceptance speech, I want to jump out of a plane with you. And then Tom Cruise was for some reason like, okay, I feel like the Academy would be like, okay, we'll make yeah, this happen. They would air that, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, and they do. There have been times I've seen where somebody will be like, hey, I'm on the set of this mm-hmm. movie. Um, but this is my pre-recorded acceptance speech in case I win. Yeah. I can't. Maybe they don't do that anymore. But they used to do that every now and then. I think that's what um, yeah. Anthony Hopkins like offered to do this okay. past year, but they wouldn't accept like a pre-recorded thing or something. Okay. And so Wait, he that's... was just like dancing with Salma Hayek in his in her living room during the Oscars instead, which is pretty cool. Okay, I feel like last or this year is the worst year to not accept a pre-recorded video because wasn't it all like yes that's why it was crazy is because i think part of that was part of the controversy that they were like insisting that people come or something like that um and like anthony hopkins was like no (laughs) 
Like he already has two or whatever. I don't know. He doesn't care. Yeah. yeah. He was yeah. like, but I'll record I a speech. A couple of years, but I certainly was not going to watch it this year because it was like, what's like the whole fun of it is like the event. It's like, yeah. I feel like not watching them on webcam. I feel like I'm going to the Oscars and Mike is going, is sitting in the back row at the Independent Spirit Awards, hanging out with the least famous Hemsworth. <laughs> But the Independent Spirit Awards are good comparatively. Yeah, no, I would, I would. That's and that's an award show, and I guess I'm not a big. It's not like I've ever actually watched it, but like I would, if it's if it's an institution you respect, I would go accept the award and I would be humbled, I would be grateful, etc. Mm-hmm. But like the Oscars, it's like this is all so dumb. It's all gotten so dumb. But yeah, the Independent Spirit Awards, I would just go hang out with John Waters. That'd be fun. I mean, as it's, shit. it's mm-hmm. been pretty dumb from the beginning, because from the beginning it was just like let's promote movies sure that yeah, we want I think the to promote is that since <laughs> i'm no longer a child it no longer yeah yeah i no longer have the illusion i that still it's like interesting or cool. i still i mean i think i still like it for all the reasons i probably always did which is like i like to see the clothes you know that was what yeah. my mom, that's the only reason my mom watched the oscars was like see the clothes see the actors she liked and then you know yeah zone out during like literally every other speech <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah anyhow uh, do we have any little stragglers for Mishima? Um, I had a question about a movies a movies question. So when he's like vibrating above that lady's tit in the golden oh yeah temple I love, thing, that yep. zoom thing, camera trick, rear projection, post uh, like how they do that. Good good question. I think it could be Rack both. Zoom. I think what uh-huh. they could have what they could have done was a zolly uh which mm-hmm. is the yeah it's it's zooming and uh moving the camera at the same like the time the jaws thing yeah yeah and which they do and, later again and i think the um the bamboo in that's in the sort of midground that moves towards the Move camera forward. i bet that those were on track moving the opposite direction which we also see later in mm-hmm the movie we see those kinds of track type things okay yeah interesting so yeah i, I think actually didn't realize cool. there was anything other than a nipple in that shot that's crazy mm. good boobs all around oh, oh absolutely absolutely top-notch stuff the lady in the pink in the pink part of the movie who's Ooh. like puts her boob on him on him that's pretty cool that's the really your stuff was that, all cool. yeah that was very cool very cool um we love boobs yeah, so I my I don't really have any little stragglers. I just I just um I would just uh kind of end my thoughts by saying again, I think this is a very very good movie. Um this is probably mm-hmm. it's crazy to me that this is the same person who directed The Canyons. Um mm-hmm. which is just like absolutely although almost as much of an experiment, I would say as yeah. this is. So yeah. he's He's got, he's got, uh, he's still trying stuff and we appreciate that. Um, but the canyons is yeah. terrible. He seems like an interesting fella. For sure. For sure. So yeah, I think, yeah. I think, I think. A lot of titties uh, part... in that as well. What's that? A lot of titties in that as well. <sighs> was there? Not, I didn't see it. Not the same quality. I remember I Andrew say. talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. It, Let's not be It's mean. a rough watch. It's a rough watch. <laughs> they don't make them like they used to. They sure don't. So, yeah, I think this is, I mean, I think this is just a, a valuable thing to watch and talk about just because I, I'm still just so amazed that, like, this is not, 
a thing that people know about. It's kind of like Dracula, where mm-hmm. I mean, but even less, you know, where it's like here's yeah. this thing that's so pushes the boundaries of you know what you're supposed to do supposed to do uh you know visually with cinema and there's just there's not a ton of movies like this and it's it's weird to me that it's not uh, more talked about we just don't i really just think like I think almost every country in the world has more of an appreciation for this kind of filmmaking than the US does you know yeah. like it's strange that this was made by an american <laughs> um it is strange but it's sort yeah. of understandable then that it's not really embraced by an american audience the way that yeah. well so it would didn't be it elsewhere not even get released in japan because they yeah they didn't like the the his estate was like both cooperative and yeah. then also like we're not going to give you certain novels we don't like that you made him homosexual like or yeah. more blatantly homosexual um. Yeah. So but yeah, they still I'm not sure who this movie would have been for. Gave him certain. Yeah, as for Paul Schrader, that's why I like him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But all right, then it is time. Ring, 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 for the cruise minute. Tom, Tom Cruise, Tom, Tom, Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise. That's good. Uh, I don't have anything, so. Uh, let's see what we got here. Around. I got something. Whoa. Oh, okay. Uh, headline says, Tom Cruise looks like a whole new person at a baseball game. Uh-oh. What? Okay. He looks weird. Uh, please. I'm going to. I guess I'm, link I'm, to it, please. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. He looks He looks like Norm MacDonald. <laughs> oh. It's, oh, no. Dead? It's in the. It's We're in dead the, for a month? It, huh. It's in the chat. Look at him. That yeah, he's looking. Look. It's very strange. He's looking yeah. puffy. Huh. It, yeah. yeah. Is it the hair? Mm. His, his face is a little heavier. I don't know if it's heavier or just puffiness. Some people speculated the actor may have gotten some work done. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's possible, but there's all no manner bad. of illnesses that would cause that He's as done well. something to his face and gained some weight. He's definitely okay. done well, stuff to his face before. Um... Yeah, but look look yeah. at this picture from uh this is really great uh podcasting content. Um but yeah. look at this look at this picture from one year ago. He looks like yeah. Ellen. <laughs> in that picture. I would rather look like Norm than Ellen. <laughs> yeah, honestly. that's true. That's a really good point, Mike. Huh. <laughs> wow. Hmm. Well, hopefully he's okay. I mean, I'm yeah. sure that that's I mean, well, it's just also, a picture of what is he he's like fifties now, right? They've also Elvis? just wrapped finally right mission impossible wrapped yeah supposedly so like i would think he's allowed to like eat again for a little bit yeah you know get his face get his face touched up if he wants to not put all of his effort into looking 20 years younger than he actually is until he makes another movie and then i'm sure he'll do it again yeah yeah don't be so hard on tom he's just enjoying a baseball game i'm trying i'm trying how old is Tom Cruise? I'm also trying to read an article about whether he whether he sees his kids. No. He says says uh, the article Cruise. says he does. Article says he does. Right. He is 59. So for a 59 year old man, he looks better than I look at the age of 35. So 
Good work, Tom. Oh, easily. I think your beard I would looks say he pretty good right now. Easily looks Mike. better than you. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, this is we're talking to somebody who's married to Mimi Rogers, Nicole Kidman, and Katie Holmes. That's pretty good. pretty good. I sometimes dream. I was just looking at his Wikipedia. I sometimes write jokes in my dream, and I just remembered when we brought up the Tom Cruise minute that I think I was trying to write some kind of joke in my head as I slept last night about the worst things that happened during the pandemic being the delay of the delayed release of mission impossible and the delayed release of top gun maverick and i was thinking like it would be funny to say one of those and then also say the other one i don't know i don't know <laughs> it's, it's not really coming together but dream me classified that as a joke yeah, the the jokes I come up with in my dreams are never very. I good. think it'd be funnier Sometimes if you I said come it. Come up with songs if in my you, dreams. If you if mm-hmm. if, the, if the, your stand up set was in the COVID ward at a hospital. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Mike. It would almost be like maybe if I made like a top ten list. Like if if like the if the Late Show with Dave Letterman was still a thing, and I made like a top ten list, and it was like top ten worst things to happen during COVID, and all of them were like Tom Cruise movies getting delayed or something. Like that would be okay. Yeah. <laughs> I think it'd be funny. Also, Tom Cruise is supposed to be in space this month. What happened? Maybe that's know. you think he's been like in the anti gravity and that does something to you. That that skin? could be it. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, that was to be the the most important thing that happened to me this year was Tom Cruise going to space. Do you think so. he was pissed about Jeff Bezos? I know. Like, who cares about that? Let's send America's yeah. uh, hero to space. <laughs> anyway carrot top carrot top. oh i read yeah. last night i read last <laughs> night about how john travolta and tom cruise don't like each other which is something i've never thought about but is like seems obvious in retrospect because like you'd think they'd be best friends and obviously like i don't think i've ever they've never been in a movie together i've never seen them do anything together i yeah um, i thought about this too yeah why they, do you know why they don't like each other know, i think i've that, never thought about this i think that john travolta is really pissed that well this is the speculation anyway that john travolta is pissed that like david miscavige like like for some reason like gave tom cruise like a made-up medal but not john travolta even though john travolta was like i think in the game earlier and at one time the biggest star of scientology but never has gotten the same kind of you know all the slaves and adoration that tom cruise uh gets i also was looking mm -hmm. do you think it's the it's because he people more people think john travolta is gay yeah i don't i mean maybe but i mean who knows what's going on in that organization but i feel like (laughs) they're both i mean they're sort of in the same water when it comes to that particular (laughs) rumor i I mean i agree there's not there's not a huge difference there i was looking at um one of john travolta's houses um and it has it's where the one where he keeps all his planes and honestly like it looks so fucking cool that he's got like a (laughs) you know 747 like that goes into his house and then a bunch of other littler planes like all around it and the whole house is designed so they can get off the plane and like walk into the house without going outside i'm like that's okay that's fucking yeah come on man they should be friends they should be out freaking flying planes together fly fly boys yeah yeah, you know, so there must Tom be Cruise some real be bad like, blood there. What's what's the line from Top Gun? You know, I'll ride your tail and I got you can ride mine. Oh, and yeah, and they John Travolta probably love that. They can ride each other's tails. Yeah, 
Maybe that's why they're not friends because they didn't want to fuel the rumors. Mm. Yeah, maybe. maybe they are friends. Maybe they're more than friends. Interesting. Hmm. I don't think, think they'd go it. for each other. Nah. I don't think Tom Tom Cruise is gay. Um, and I don't think John Travolta would go for Tom Cruise. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know anything about either. That's what I'll John say. John Travolta's wife was very pretty, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, right, all three of all three of uh, Tom Cruise's wives have been very pretty. So mm-hmm. that's the other thing where we're like, cool. where you know, with uh, just you know, it, it it gets my goat when people are like, John Travolta's living a lie, and it's like, you know what? You can love your wife and want to fuck dudes, okay? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. This is hot. Have, tell, she texts me I that have no like, doubt. at least once a week. <laughs> I have no doubt that John Travolta totally loved Kelly Preston. Kelly sure. Preston, yeah. because and it's fucking insulting because like, you know, John Travolta's first love or first prominent love was that actress who's like was much older than him. I think her name was Diana something. And she like died of breast cancer in his arms. And then he oh, wow. lost his second wife, you know, the same way. His second wife of like, you know, 30 years or however long. And it's like, bruh, you don't raise kids with a lady and live with her for 30 years and like see her through cancer and not have some kind of it's not affection for her. It's not like yeah. we aren't that black and white people. Everyone is by. There we go. All right. Thank you. Thank you, Kit. I've learned a lot. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, <laughs> thank you all for joining us tonight, folks. Uh, oh, but, but Mike, please join us next week. The viewers and the listeners want to know what we're going to be talking about next week. So do I. Yeah. What is next week? Next week is <laughs> Ed Wood. Oh. oh, seriously? Yeah, let's do Ed Wood. Oh, yeah. All right. <laughs> what's the what's the third movie? Like, I, I realize mm-hmm. I, I have no idea what this triple is other than Mishima. And now it's unconventional yeah. biopics. Well, I know that, but I don't know what the movies are. Uh, yeah. Oh, I'm figuring it out, apparently. It is, it is shifted a little. So I You don't do know what's yeah. after Ed Wood? Uh, yeah, I want to do Ed Wood. Well, I think I want to do... I want to do a movie called... Uh, from, I think, last year or the year before called Tesla. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if it's good, though. But I want to watch it. I've watched Is that the Cumberbatch one, or is that a different one? E- Ethan Hawke. It's the Ethan Hawke one. Oh, it's yes, just I remember. very... Yeah, it's a very, it's very, it's, it's unconventional. Um, yeah, I think I might do that one, but I worry Bono's it's not daughter her. is in it. What's that? Bono's daughter is in it. Yes. She was also in Robin you know, Hood. What is the newest movie we've done? I don't think we've done anything from like the last decade or no fun size. I think we did fun we size. also did Fanny Lie Delivered. That was like 2019. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. That was recent. Yeah, that's the most recent one. Yep. This was the first fully foreign language film. That Kyle McLaughlin yep. plays Thomas Edison, and I really want to see that. That's cool. Oh, yeah. yeah. For that that yeah. sounds like a good good triple. Okay, great. Then that's that's the triple. Cool. Consider it a lock. Join us next week for Ed Wood, 1994, Woo-hoo! I think. Um, slow motion triple feature was recorded in the... Oh, I'm a typo. In the Temple of the Golden Pavilion. Special thanks to our producer, Lee, the man in the booth who makes us sound great. If you'd like to contact us, please do so at slowmotiontriple at gmail.com.